Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have another really interesting twofer for you. Second up is Rebecca Pigeon. I will tell you more about that when we get to her. First up is Jason Sheff. I think most people probably remember Jason Sheff from when he joined Chicago. Imagine you're 23 years old and you've been plucked out of obscurity basically to replace the face of one of the biggest bands in the world. And your, and your inauguration to the world is this song right here, this big hit, Will You Still Love Me? He stayed in the band for 31 years during all that success and going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and everything like that. He left a little while ago, mostly for some family matters, but now he's back with basically a super group called Generation Radio. And I've been hearing from a lot of you who are familiar with this Generation Radio album. It is fantastic. It is just like what you imagine listening to pop rock radio would have been like in the 80s. And it, that is basically the intention here. I really, really hope that you will give this one a spin. It is great. It came out earlier this year. So we get into that, kind of the nature of a supergroup, what went into this project, if it's just kind of focused now. What is most interesting, though, about this conversation with Jason is that he dispels all kinds of rumors and sort of myths about life in Chicago, about Peter Cetera, about who's left and why they leave, and the dynamic of the band, and whether it's cool or whether it's not. He dispels all of that. It is so interesting. Totally took me by surprise. Now, unfortunately, I only had him for about 40 minutes or so, 45. Um, I could have talked to him forever. He's been on my list for a long time, but I loved what conversation we had. We also get into, you guys may remember, I love the I love Chicago's Stone of Sisyphus album, which is such a weird album, but it is so fantastic, so fascinatingly weird and wonderful. We get into that and kind of what was going on there too. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. I'll tell you more about Rebecca in the middle. He called me from his home in Nashville. Uh, okay, so first and foremost, I usually um, so I had been listening to the New Generation album about half a dozen times before I read anything about it or looked, it, looked into it at all to kind of form my own opinions. And while I'm listening to it, I'm thinking to myself, this is a little bit of everything. This album feels like the, the name of this band is perfect because this sounds like what radio sounded like a couple of generations ago. And there's AOR, there's pop rock, there's hard rock, there's some monster ballads. And then I go and read some of the press materials and I realize that was the intention, right? So yep. when you go into making this album, do you and Dean and Jake and the other guys, do you say, we want to take this back to radio as we knew it? What's the mandate here? I don't think it was that specific. It was, uh, if you think about it, really the the actual era of the, of the feel of this album is the one I lived the, and I I, my career got started in the eighties, right? Maybe a bit of the nineties, but Derek and Jay, they were, they were making, they were making records. They were making records, but those guys are 10 years younger than me. Dean's around my age. He might be a little younger. I'm 60. I just turned 60. And so when I joined Chicago in 1985, right in the middle of the eighties, it was when all this, music was I, I really consider it 
one of the peaks of record production, mixing, songwriting, mastery of instruments and vocals. I, I really consider myself one of the last generations that you had to really earn your way in. Mm -hmm. The gear wasn't, the technology wasn't out yet to be able to fix stuff. Mm -hmm. You had to, you had to earn your way in. And those records, you know, one of the things that, that I think was so refreshing for anybody who's making modern modern music is that we really erred toward capturing those things that people love about that specific uh, that time mm -hmm. period, which I always um, explain it in a way that when we're four or five people getting into a room and playing music together at the same time, and you have musicians on that level and singers on that level, some pretty awesome stuff's going to be happening. And one of the things I'm just, I look back and I just keep pinching myself to have been brought into a family like Chicago and, and really being brought in as the future of the franchise mm -hmm. going from six months before that, if you heard me in a, in a club I was not the guy you were gonna. You were saying, "Watch that guy; he's going places." Mm -hmm. It was getting the opportunity, and having that band and David Foster believe in me mm -hmm. that when the red light went on on day one on Chicago eighteen, and I thought, like I think a lot of people thought, "Well, this will probably be probably be over sooner than later," and I'll crash and burn, and and they'll realize they made a mistake but man something happened from the minute that tape rolled that i felt comfortable that's great and i was with david foster who i had heard chews up and spits out mm -hmm. real singers yep and i had no problem with him man we were i was so inspired and that moment and that experience really was wonderful because my itch was scratched yeah on day one, I never had to wonder what it felt like to work with people on that level. I know what it feels like. So when I'm not working with people on that level, I can tell them, yeah. you know, in a nice way. Because there's a lot of people who are a bit disillusioned. But I come from that era, having yeah. that experience during that period that, that we have captured on this record, that I lived it. Now, Jay DeMarcus made a lot of records, and he did it the old-fashioned way also. I was making hits during the 80s right so his love of that music and his development coming up on it and Derek Basin our engineer again was a perfect storm because we're not trying to be new we're not trying to chase after any fads mm -hmm. us just going in and doing what we do it just came out as a sound okay that is from that from that time period that makes so much sense i love there's a couple of spots in the album like um from uh i hope you find it into time to let go
Or Smoking, which might be my favorite song on the album, Into Anything But Us, where you either go from a ballad to a hard rock jam, or you go from a jam back to a ballad or something. Lord have mercy, look what just walked in. How could there not be a ring on that hand? And these transitions are so much fun because like I was saying, it reminds me so much of what listening, especially you. I mean, I, I had gotten turned on, like I was a kid. I was like 11 years old when Chicago 17 came out and mm. I got turned on like everyone else did. And I saw them in concert with Peter mm. and then he Great. leaves and you take over and I'm a little skeptical, but, really? um, but, uh, will you still love me? I love that track. So I immediately buy the tape. I like the tape a lot. Niagara Falls is on there. I love that tune. I've always wondered, why did you guys redo 25 or 64?
David Foster was saying from day one, we should recut and modernize one of the big hits. Mm. And so they just kind of like looked around at the, at the catalog and it just made sense. Jimmy Panko had that groove started that we ended up in that tempo and brought it in. And that's when I don't remember who it was. I think it was Foster. So what about 25 or 64 to this? Mm-hmm. And everybody, we had the best time doing it. Apparently what I heard was that radio, the calls were really strong. People were calling in, they were loving it, but the program directors were all the age of the, the band. They'd grown up with that band. So they were all turning 40. Isn't that funny? They were all turning 40 years old <laughs> and, and they did not like us remaking something that was an anthem to them. And so it was almost like, I heard comments like they're spitting on the flag by mm. doing that. And so we had to scramble. So Tara had just come out with um, glory of love and it was, it was rocketing up the charts. So mm-hmm. somebody said, okay, um, 25 or 64 is not really screaming. So let's, let's come, come out with the ballad. Yeah. You well, it was me. a perfect way to announce you. I mean, I remember, you're singing that thing. You sound pretty similar to Peter, but similar enough where people aren't going to be scared or free or like something so foreign is coming their way, but close enough that it's comfortable. You sound good with the horns. You sound good with the band. My, by the way, I've always, if I remember correctly, there was a rumor at the time that Richard Page from Mr. Mr. was going to be replacing Peter. And is that true? They were talking to him, but I don't think he was really that interested in it. They talked to him. When I went in to meet with Howard Kaufman, who was the main manager at the time, when they first called me in 1985, Howard told me that it was, it was, it was between me and Mickey Thomas. And I thought, really? yeah, because Pete, uh, Richard had already been, approached and he he had his big record with take, Mr. Mr. You know, broken wings and everything. He hasn't paid you guys. Well yeah. yeah he was and it wasn't out yet so he was oh. you know he wasn't going to abandon his band. He, yeah. he that was ready to come out. Same thing with with the Starship. They were they were on the on the verge of releasing the album with Sarah and We Built the City. So both of those guys had really strong projects. So to have left that, you know, they just weren't really that interested in it. But when I found when Howard told me that it was between me and Mickey Thomas. I think he saw my head kind of, you know, a little dejected. And he, he said something that I've, I've used in uh, ever since then with anybody that I see that is starting to talk themselves out of, of success. He said, Jason, like I said, he, he said, it's between you and Mickey Thomas. And I'm like, kind of, and he goes, Jason, and I looked up and he says, they wanted to work with you says go get go get the gig he's telling me it's my game to lose and i've 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 used that a few times since then with people that i Mm -hmm. i saw that were really um great and were in position to be successful and that they were going to allow themselves to talk themselves out of it and i told them go get the gig man it's yours it's yours to lose wild that must have been huge you were 23 or something at the time and you're about to join this gigantic band. It was pretty crazy. I remember that this lunch, you know, Mo Austin just passed, bless his heart. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy who really 
built Warner Brothers Records up. And his son, Michael, is the one who discovered me. And when I got the gig, we all went to, you know, this, it was classic. It was, it was, you know, just like you hear about, it was in Hollywood. It was either like La Dome or, or one of those fancy restaurants. And it was the, it was the, the welcome lunch of me joining Chicago. And it was everybody from Irving Azoff, Howard Kaufman, Denny Rosencrantz from Howard's office, Michael and Mo Austin, Lenny Warrenker. Mm. It was incredible. It was like, the most powerful table and then you're sitting at it and they're, they're smiling at you because you've joined the family. Mm -hmm. Wow. Can I, I mean, we're talking about Chicago. I, I, I want to get back to generation radio here in a second because yep. I love the album, but I do have some more questions. Chicago related, as you mm -hmm. know, at that time, Foster was taking them in the ballad direction, which was different than they had done downplaying the horns, playing up the, the love ballads, and the next couple of albums, although Niagara Falls and 25 or 6 to 4 have rocking songs on them, they're not the ones that are really taking hold. What's the vibe in Chicago at the time? Are they are they aware that, like, look, you know, the, the horn-focused rock is not where it's at right now. We To remain solvent and as big as we are, we need to follow this ballad path. Were you privy to conversations like that? Well, absolutely. I mean, it was... It was a no-brainer. I, when I walked in the door, and I think this is very smart of David Foster because it was uh, successful. You know, they brought him in to, to be successful. That band was down and out. They were done. Lost their record deal with CBS in the late 70s. And I think it was, it was a combination of Irving Azoff, um, Danny Serafin brought, I think, Foster and Champlin to the table. And Irving was the one that really, I believe, pulled the trigger to create the opportunity for Chicago 16. So, you know, they went with David Foster. And you listen to Chicago 16. And I know that some people's perspective, listen, it, I, I grew up with, with Chicago in the 70s, and I adored you know, from like the sixth album, because I was, that's my age, right? I was, I was 10 or 11 when that album came out, maybe nine, 10, 10 years old. So I was not there for the very beginning of it, you know, too young, six, seven years old. But when I discovered the band on Chicago six, like just you and me and feeling stronger every day and, and heard that sound, it's revolutionary. Now those horns are the whole concept was that they would have an equal presence as vocals. They're like another set of vocals. So there's, they're as loud as the vocals and just grooving the tracks and songs, just like vocals did. Was, that was the magic. When I, being a fan of the band and then hearing them on Chicago 16, I didn't notice a, a lack of horns. Mm. They were there to me, but from those guys' perspective, it was not as prominent. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I didn't really see it that way, but they did, you know, and it was, and then the fact that the ballad is what put him into the stratosphere. It was a mad, hard to say, I'm sorry. Come on, man. So I think from what I saw, of course, the band enjoyed the success of it, but I would definitely hear rumblings of this thing is just not what we started out as. It's, it's you know, it's, we're a ballad band. 
blah, blah, blah. But we kept going with it. Yeah. So at the end of the day, right. you know, it's one of those things where you hear bands that really struggled that came that were so revolutionary. And then especially during the 80s, they all did it. Cheap yeah. Trick, uh, Bad English, you know, Journey was all, I mean, there's another great example. that the Some of the biggest hits are ballads. And I've heard that there's a, there's a struggle in that camp of like people that really want it to rock, you know. Yeah, but, it's almost a deal with the devil. I had Ann Wilson on here from Heart recently, and we were talking about this similar thing. As you know, they just kind of ignore the 80s. But for a guy like me who grew up with listening to those hits, I love those songs. But she well, thinks I didn't write them. I had to wear this uncomfortable bustier in the videos. I don't want to. That's not me. I don't. I was. I'm like. I was. You know, making a deal with the devil for some success, and now I don't want to go back there. And we love it though. We wish she would. You know. But, but see, I, it's funny because I don't see it as a deal with the devil. It's like a fantastic, phenomenal part of of a band's sure. history. Yeah, and, she did, which is unfortunate. Well, I know, and a lot of them do that had an amazing era during the 70s. Mm -hmm. But I think for the most part, you know, well, like I said, from the day I walked in the door, David Foster said, and this was really bizarre to hear, we walked in to make Chicago 18, and he said the tenor voice is singing all the singles. Just said it. And I'm looking at Robert Lamb and Bill Champlin as iconic vocalists and going, whoa, yeah. that's all being put on me. And I'm, like I said, I didn't know if I'd even be able to pull it off until all of a sudden they started rolling tape and I felt very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And one thing I have to say about Champlin and, and Lamb that are just amazing, in the big picture, those guys, I never once saw them sitting back and kind of, you know, um, jealous and going, man, and, and especially like I was just a kid getting my feet wet. I mean, yeah. I could record, obviously, but going out and, and performing live, it was very, very strange, you know, because okay. I was just getting my feet wet. But they always were supportive and Good. trying to trying to help me. Oh, so it was it was a team effort. We won, buddy. I mean, yeah. think about it. The funny yeah. thing is, in the big picture, when everything's over, nobody can even open their mouths anymore, or move their fingers, and you look back at the whole arc. It's amazing. There was never any deal with the devil. Okay, good. I was yeah. good. That's how I viewed it. I I have to ask you about Stone of Sisyphus because I love that album. Love it. 
And uh, Tris and I talked about it. Peter Wolf, I've had him on here. We talked about it a little bit. It is so odd and so different than everything else. There's rap on there. There's these hip hop beats. I, what was the, I, everything you just said about, you know, giving in and indulging in the ballads. I'm imagining by the time Sisyphus comes around, you guys are like, screw this. Let's do what we want. Let's get crazy again. And that's where that album comes from. You're exactly right. So really? actually it makes sense that on Chicago 21, we ran into a problem where the radio was playing all of the eighties hits mm. still in heavy rotation. So by the time that, and they were Diane Warren songs. So it's not like we didn't have good songs, mm -hmm. a proven formula, look away. I don't want to live without your love off Chicago 19. Mm -hmm. We had two more of those coming uh, on the, on the 21st album. And we, it stiffed. Mm -hmm. They weren't, they weren't successful. And the reason was, and this makes perfect sense. The word I heard, the phrase I heard was there isn't any urgency to add the singles. What oh, that sure. meant was that hard habit to break, hard to say I'm sorry, you're the inspiration, will you still love me, what kind of man would I be? Look away. Look yeah. away. I don't want to live like that. We're up to yeah. seven. Yeah, seven, eight, eight songs that are still being played. In so there wasn't any room for anything new. Never thought of that. All right? So I'll go along with the fact that, you know, you're still trying to put the same type of thing out and you're just you've oversaturated your yourselves mm -hmm. that would have been pretty bold to have gone with something completely different at that time because we had won we had won so big leading up to it after that album the the consensus was well if we're we're going to fail i'd rather fail doing our own stuff mm -hmm. right and I mean, Robert Lamb, it's, it's documented. That's what he said. And that's, I, I, we all agreed with it. Mm -hmm. And so we basically told the record label, you're not going to hear any of this, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, but that was the sentiment. It's like, when are we going to get back to, and I had never made a record like that. Yeah. Like they said they did in the early days, CTA. So we were trying to go back to that spirit of let's just internally we're all going to write the songs within the band there were some co-writers but everybody in the band was it was a co-writer at least on uh on every song on that album peter wolf is a big fan of chicago so he was excited about that we and truth be told we 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 gave two or three songs that we were working on to the label and the word came back i'll never forget it one of them was my, one of my copies copyrights called the pull Lamb and I wrote with, with Peter Wolf.
And the word came back, Chicago's back and in a big way. So they had heard a few songs. We kept them out of the studio and then eventually finished the album and turned it in. And the word was, we hate the record. And I'm going, well, what about the three that you loved? Well, they were saying, we need you to go in and record more songs. And that's when the consensus, and it wasn't for me, but I went along with it. The consensus was, sorry, this is the record. So they dropped us. So there you have the, if you want to, if you don't want to go with what's successful, and a lot of people, listen, I've been working with Todd Rundgren the last three or four years. And want to talk about a guy who just said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do the same old thing. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's not me. Right. And, and he completely, you know, made an about face and continues to. Yeah. So it's up to the artist. Yeah. You What's know, that like I, when that album though sits on the shelf for 15 years or whatever it was? I read a book a years ago, 10 years ago called, I don't remember what it was called, something about the great albums that never came out. And there were chapters on, it was like a Seal album and a David Bowie album. One of the chapters was on this one. And uh, luckily, thankfully, eventually it did come out and I bought it and I love it. What's that like no. when it's just sitting there and you're like, we took the chances. We've tried to do something different and you won't do anything with it. I think, well, for me, and it kind of seemed like everybody else, we were just so busy doing all these other things. It didn't even think about it. Okay. Okay. You know? Yeah. And then now it's so funny because it's so wide open that you can put anything out. Yeah. You know? It really is. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about the song Mahjong. I meant to look it up before we hopped on. Did you write that? Because there's a really mellow version on your Chauncey album. But then yeah, that was it's like the amped up version on Sisyphus. It was me, Brock Walsh, and Aaron Zygman wrote Mahjong, and Brock Bill Walsh, came in. He's great. I like that. He is. Yeah. And and uh, Bill came in and sang, sang the demo with us, which was just fantastic. And then when I made my first solo record, I I did a version of it, and yeah, it's a bit more tame because it's my my vocal. But then uh -huh. Champlin, we we brought the old, uh, you know, we we always call him like. Um, the the semi truck going down the yes. great line, you know, you know Brett yeah, Champlin yeah. and the, That's it. to just pummel it, which he did. So it was fantastic. Um, is Chauncey a dog that passed away? Yeah, he was my dog, and okay during the album, you know, yeah, he passed away. So we said, it did, okay. "We're gonna 
going to dedicate it to him. I thought so. I thought so. The covers, the dog and everything. So I got to ask Jason, you're not in the band anymore. Bill yeah. and Tris are not in the band, but they were, and Danny are all, I think on bad terms. Um, oh, really? I think so. I mean, it sounded that way with Tris. That's, that's what I've heard. Um, oh. Tris wouldn't go into details and that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, you left okay though. Are you still friendly with them? Were you having health issues or something like that? If I remember right. My in-laws were, um, Ooh. My, I found out we went on a family vacation with my in-laws and uh, we came back. And my wife said, something's weird with my mom. Mm. She said, I think it's, it's, she had breast cancer and thought she beat it. She says, something's weird and came back and found out, yeah, it returned. So I picked us up and moved us to Utah. You for, live in Utah? For the last three and a half half years of their lives oh i'm from utah that blows oh, me away yeah yeah so i picked us up and i moved us out there to spend the, their lives with them and i her my wife's father passed first which was oh. a bit unexpected but you could just see this was really tearing them up and these were very strong figures in my kids lives and our lives and everything so i watched my wife for the first time in my life she was, you know, she still is a very strong person. And um, I watched what that was doing to her. And I, her father passed and then all the treatments, you know, of trying to keep her mom going. Finally, they just said, well, it's to the point where we're going to stop treatment and she's officially in hospice state. And so I went to the guys in the, at the beginning of 2016 and told them, said, I'm going to have to be going home to take care of my family. And they were just completely supportive oh, and understood. Good. Good. So, yeah, that's that's what happened. It's so funny because when I joined the band, there was no big fanfare. So when I had to come home and take care of my family, there was no fanfare. There, sh there, there shouldn't be. But if you're not sort of explaining, and I, we put it out, what happened. You know, everything was cool. But, man, people got so goofy mm -hmm. with all kinds of with all kinds of uh, conspiracy theories, you know, and well, but that's, that's okay. why I ask because the I don't I, I don't know that it's as good on the other guy's side, but I'm glad it is on yours. Oh yeah, well I don't know what anybody else is doing, so that's um, you okay. know. Is yeah. your wife from Utah? Were her parents from Utah? Her well, they moved up there. Oh, okay, they moved up there. So, huh? Uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, so something I find really interesting about, I, I'm going to call Generation Radio a super group. I don't know if you guys yeah. view yourselves that way, but it kind of is, you know? Absolutely. Um, super groups are always temporary for whatever reason. It seems to be that a bunch of friends um, have similar openings in their calendars and they just think, let's get together and make some music and see what happens. Um, is that what brought this together? Are you guys going to tour on this album? Well, we're doing some dates. You know, we're doing dates, and uh, we, we're all very committed to it. And, yeah, so for now, our, 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 our main focus is on this band. I mean, uh, okay. Jay's, you know, Jay's Rascal Flats, man. These guys yeah, you eventually... two have been going back for a while, right? You guys have been... Yeah, yeah, on. for 20 years. So, I mean, you know, Rascal Flats will... I believe eventually 
you know, at least do their farewell tour or something. And so he's got that. I've got a bunch of other projects. I've got a really fun project with Tommy Thayer of Kiss and Champlin. Champlin's in a, and uh, Steve Ferroni's playing drums. Kiss is on their farewell tour that is going to probably be going another two years. So yeah, that project won't really see the light of day for another couple of years. I, I'm working on some solo material. It's uh, pretty exciting with Michael O'Martian. Talk what? about it. Oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah, man. So I'm doing that. And Jay and I are talking about doing maybe a, a duet record, the two of us. Right. We're talking about maybe working with O'Martian a little bit on that too but for right now you know generation radio is um, good yeah is where okay. our where our focus is everybody's is, into it i'm always fascinated by the projects people choose to focus on and pick up when big situations like this are over like for instance i because so for instance a few years ago i had liberty devito on here mm -hmm. and we all know his story you know he's with billy forever sort of unceremoniously gets let go and I'm to me, I think of it like a sports team. To me, Jason Chef, Liberty DeVito, you guys are out there as free agents. You know, who wants to pick up Jason Chef to be on their team? Who wouldn't want a Michael Jordan or a Jason Chef or a Liberty DeVito on their team? But it doesn't work that way. And so I always think, well, it's so fascinating to me what the people, what people like you choose to focus their time on after a big endeavor like Chicago ends. And I'm guessing in a situation like this, maybe it's just that these are your friends and you're financially solvent enough that I can do what I want. And right now I want to play with my buddies. Is that sort of the motivator for this or is it something else? Well, as, uh, as cliche as it sounds, you know, what I want to focus on is my beautiful family, man. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly why. Uh, I've decided to to go in directions I've gone in the last, you know, whatever, six years. As you say, it's kind of weird when you're speaking about yourself to, you know, almost sounds like you might be kind of pumping yourself up or anything. But the truth of the matter is you're exactly right. Is that people call me all the time and, and hire me to come do corporate things. And it's pretty nice, man. They, you just show up and sing three or four songs and they pay you real well. And, and you get to go home and, and continue. I've got a 21 and a 24-year-old son that are both into music, and we all work out of a, an office space. And it's just the greatest thing to hear their sounds coming through the walls. And that's really, you know, like I said, my wife and I are both 60 years old. And so that's having lived, you know, plenty of life, but you know, my dad's out here right now in Nashville. I'm in Nashville. Mm -hmm. My father's 81 years old. And I don't know if you know this, but he was Elvis Presley's bass player. I did know that. Yeah. Yeah. So Sorry. we're spending time with my dad. My dad is super healthy. Good. And that's, you know, when you've gone through loss and that we, and we all do, it's just a matter of time. You know, the profound lessons that you get through that are, are really just watching how, you know, how are you going to spend your time? So, so in general, yes, I've done everything I've wanted to do in the music business. And then some, um, part of a pretty incredible piece of music history. And now I get to, you're exactly right. Do what I want to do. So I, I love being in this band generation radio. Uh, I love being able to call Michael O'Marty and Steve Ferroni, Vinnie Caliuta, John Robinson, Ooh. 
uh, all these guys and they're my friends and they're they're at the ready to work with me so oh, man. Um, for you. you're right it's an all-star team man yeah it is can't believe i'm in on it i can't either those are all names i've tried several times to get every one of those people on the show and hasn't worked out um curious are you in the hall of fame Chicago is, but my name isn't isn't in it. But I wondered. Come on, that's now. all right. And listen, man, it's kind of arbitrary, you know, who they actually. But I mean, come on, you know, we were performing at the ceremony. It was so nice, you know, having Danny come and and do. We hadn't seen him in a long time. And bro, I'm standing there, front and center, singing twenty five or sixty four. The guy that's singing it for thirty years coming up, and there's Cheap Trick in front of me. I'm looking over at my friends in Deep Purple, yeah. David Coverdale and and uh, Glenn Hughes jumping out of their seats, giving me a, yeah. a thumbs up. We're all in the Hall of Fame, Matt, okay. whether your name's there Good. or not. Good. Okay. I wanted to check. We have Patreon supporters, and I always let them know who I'm talking to. And if they want to, they can submit questions. This might be a sensitive one. I don't know. One sure. of my listeners, Ian Sharp, he said he had read sometime in the past uh, about the last shows in London's Hammersmith Odeon, where I believe Jason had to assist maintaining time on stage. I wondered his recollection of being on that stage at the time, and were those performances so bad and s- the subsequent fallout? I think these were the last times that Tris performed as well. I don't believe that to be the case because we don't. I have a great answer to that, though. You're saying, okay. D- was I assisting in the time? What it said. We all were. Mm, and point. you know what? Given a, given any type of uh, day, all of us mm. have had good nights, bad nights. And that's what a team does is support each other, man. And so they were there for me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been there for them. Yeah. So I can't specifically go to a to a night saying that okay. I... I felt a responsibility to assist in time as Tris and I've talked about many times over the years and Danny, you know, is that we're all responsible for the time. You can't, you can't pin it on one person. Mm-hmm. You really can't. Yeah. So uh, again, it's, I just love, I love what people have, uh, <laughs> have manufactured just, as far as narrative, know. you know, just pass it and along. You want to know something? Hey man, yeah. you want to know, you want to know the best part of it? People have said to me over the years, they go, I can't, I can't, man, it must've been tough to do this, man. It must've been, it must be tough fielding questions that are uncomfortable. And you know what I say to them? It's worth it, man. (laughs) (laughs) You have no idea how worth it it is. (laughs) Dude. It's like, I love, I love when people will start in just going, you know, I love, I don't really run into this much, but at the beginning of internet and, uh-huh. you know starting to see the negative websites and and hear them talk about how horrible i am that i don't deserve oh, you know to to what? whatever man that's just human nature of like what's going on out there with all this culture and, and i say man it's you know I, I i the fact that you would even attempt to replace somebody like peter satara or whatever and you don't you're not worthy to be in 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 a band like that, blah blah blah, whatever. The worst of like people, the, the quote unquote haters, right. and and I always and they'd say, man, you know, I I would never do that, and I I want it so badly to say, oh please, you'd <laughs> love to be in that. Believe me, you would love more than 
anything because you know what, bro? It was awesome. It was the best and continues to be. Like again, like I say, I got Michael O'Mardian. Yeah. I'm doing strings with him in two days. Or is it tomorrow? It might be tomorrow. No. In two days, I'm gonna be doing strings on four songs. And man, when you get a guy like that who has told me that I have lit him up, go for it. Anybody who the naysayers, it's like, okay, you're right. We're stuck though, man. Yeah. I can't can't undo the past. I can't do can't undo the success we've had. I wish I could for you. I'll I'll ignore my feelings. Uh, I'll ignore what Michael O'Mardian tells me and I'll listen to what this troll tells me instead. That's gotta be the truth. You know what's weird about that too? And it's like Here's the thing that's that's troublesome about it all. Forget personalities that it's you or or anything. The fact that our society has gotten to a place where that's okay. You know, I was thinking about this the other day of when somebody says, I saw like a little meme saying, if you don't have haters, you're not, you know, you're not you're not really even in the game. I'm going, so that's so that's accepted. Yeah, that that's a that's a that little eyes are watching, little eyes and ears are watching, and if a behavior is demonstrated enough and becomes a norm, I just don't agree with that. That like it's it's okay. To, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I really don't let it bother me because, like you said, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I wish I could help you with that, but we're stuck. I was successful. Right. I can't help it. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to go be a successful musician. You stay here and deal with your anger. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not going to stop what I'm doing to make you happy. Um, okay. I did have another question. Ian also asked about Steve Ferroni. Steve Ferroni is not a part of generation radio, but you did mention him a second ago. Are you, is, is he a part of one of the other side projects you have going on? He's in generation radio. Oh, he is. Dean's, Dean's okay. in journey. So, uh, Dean's in Journey and um, Steve Ferroni's in Generation Radio. Very happy. Oh, okay. Did you Steve mm-hmm. perform on the album? Not, no, not on the album because Dean okay. was. We made the record and then we started playing live and then Journey snatched Dean yeah. back, which is really where he belongs. It's, sure. it's, it's his gig. And then I said, never fear. Steve, <laughs> I know a guy, <laughs> one of my best friends, and he's been so great for this. Good, good, good. Oh, this is great, Jason. Uh, I have just been fascinated with you forever, and you're behind so much <laughs> music that I love. Thank you for chatting with me about it and having a really well. Okay, I got one more question. Did you All ever right. meet or interact with Peter Cetera? Absolutely. He called me, and I wish I would have saved this message. He left the most beautiful voice message when he'd heard Chicago 18 and said, Jason, Peter Cetera here. Just wanted to tell you, I heard the album and you sound great. Love your voice. Love your writing. Congratulations. And don't get into too much trouble out on the road. So again, any of the quote unquote haters is like, I wish I could help you, man. But Peter Cetera has been nice to me. And we've talked over the years. I'll tell you what, I I was even uh, talking to a Martian about this, that, I would love to do something with Peter. Yes. You know? oh, who knows? Yes. Who knows? Oh, yes. Ooh, that would be interesting. You two going out there for like a co-head tour or something like that. Oh my gosh. Who knows, man? I'm 
I've all, and he's expressed, we sat down and had coffee years ago and I told him, I said, I've always wanted to work with you, man. I said, how would you feel if I sent you some, some ideas that, you know, I'm working on writing and he goes, bring it on, man. So you never know. I don't know how active he is right now. So, wow. wow. You're dispelling every, uh, urban myth about you and Chicago and Peter as we speak. And I think, you know, that that is so great to hear. Oh, it's, I just love what, what people have said. <laughs> I, know, I know. Okay. Well, anyway, back to what I was saying. Thank you, Jason, for being you. I love the new album. I'm excited to hear everything else you do. Thank you for being so candid about your whole career with me. I really appreciate it. You're the best. My pleasure, man. Thanks for the chat. All right. There you have it, Jason. Chef, I love that conversation. That was so interesting. And all that stuff that he dispels, I mean, that is just not what you hear about when you hear about Chicago. Anyway, good for him. And please check out Generation Radio. It is so good. Now, I have all along, since starting the podcast, been wanting to feature somebody who wasn't just a singer, but also an actor or an actress. And the opportunity came along to talk to Rebecca Pigeon, and I was so glad because I've had my eye on Rebecca since I first saw her in The Spanish Prisoner. Do you remember that movie? That's one of my favorite movies ever. I'd never seen anything like it. And come to find out that she's married to David Mamet, has been for many years. And so she appears in a lot of his movies, but in a lot of other things as well. She's a very accomplished actress. She also, what I found out shortly after this, was is a singer-songwriter. And so I've been following her music forever. And what's interesting about her, to me is that every album sounds different from the one before. She's got an album of like Scottish folk songs. She's got a, the folk album. She's got the rock album. She's got like the la her last album is almost more of like a drum machine album. This new one, which is called Parts of Speech, Pieces of Sound, was inspired by her yoga practice. So there's a heavy Indian music uh, influence and vibe. I love Indian music. I love it. So this is the first track right here, Now Begins. So anyway, we get into her love of yoga, which, I mean, I'm not, my wife does yoga. I've done it a couple of times. A lot of it, I don't know. It's not, I'm not as religious about it, but uh, it's fascinating to learn what motivates her. And then we get into all the other stuff as well. All of her music, some of the acting. She went to drama school with Clive Owen, who's one of my favorite actors. So we talk about that. Anyway, I wanted to bridge the gap between talking to a, an actor that I admire and a singer-songwriter that I admire. And we've got all of those here. I also have two copies of her latest CD to give away. I'll tell you more about that at the very end, okay? She called me from her home in LA. Okay, so first and foremost, I, I, I will never forget when I first became aware of you. It might be the same moment when a lot of people did, and that was in The Spanish Prisoner. And yeah. uh, I loved that movie. I'd never seen you before. I thought you were so, you gave like the most unique line readings. And I know David is a very specific writer in general. Every um and uh is there on purpose. And I just thought, who... Who is this person getting this really tasty role that I've never heard of before or seen? And you give one of my favorite line readings in any movie ever. And I have, it's been a while. I've seen the movie a few times, but it's been a while. And so I'm probably, I may be getting this wrong. But when you're talking to Campbell Scott and you're sort of offering up your help or support and you say something like, if you'd like me to make you dinner, if you'd like me to make you dinner and breakfast. And the way you say that says so much. 
I love that. <laughs> so forgive me for like fanning out on you for a minute. So ever since then, I've paid close attention to what Rebecca Pigeon is doing because I was so taken by that movie and you and just even just that one line. I'll never forget it. Oh, <laughs> we had so much fun making that film. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, the, I guess the, the reason I popped on the scene like that, like you said, you know, who is this person? We've never seen her before in, in, in this wonderful role. Um, I met Dave when I was acting in his play Speed the Plow at the National Theatre in 1989. And so I was a, a theatre actress in London and making a name for myself there. And then we met and got married and I, I moved to the States where nobody knew me. And um, by the time we made The Spanish Prisoner, we had... Um, our daughter Clara. So we were married, and um, he knew he knew who I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That's why he cast me. I get it, and you've been in a lot of his other movies too. And it, it's interesting because hearing you talk, your accent is like somewhere in the middle of a British, Scottish, and American accent. It's this sort yeah. of un—you can't quite. You don't quite know where it's coming from, and that was leading yeah. that led or fed into your kind of mystique when I saw that movie. And you as an actress in general. Mm, thank you. Yes, that's right. Very few people can place um, yeah. me when they hear me talk. A couple, the, the only people who have done have been dialect coaches. Yeah, and they said you're from Edinburgh, and I've <laughs> been shocked that they knew. <laughs> Wow. They pick up on that. That's great. Yeah. So, so a few months after I saw the movie and I've still got it in my head, I'm in a borders and I see one of your CDs in a listening station mm -hmm. and I had no idea you were a singer as well. And so I don't remember which one it was, but I played it and there's more in the racks, you know, there's more, wow, this person. So ever since then I've paid attention to, like I said, pretty much everything that you've done. Oh, thank goodness for borders, right? Yeah, rip, rest in peace, borders. I guess. Oh, I, I know. God. Yeah, Back it's like everything else. Yeah, really. So this new album is. <sighs> Tell me about what inspired it, because I know that it's tied to yoga. Is it inspired by yoga? Is it meant to be played while you're doing yoga? What's the connection? Okay. Um, no, it's not supposed to be played while you're doing yoga. I mean, it's okay. not yoga music or meditation no, or anything. It's, like it's continuation of my, I, I suppose, contemporary alternative pop rock, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it during the during lockdown, um, uh, I was um, studying on online with the online teachings of Prashant Iyengar, who was teaching the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. He went online, the Iyengar family went online because of lockdown, right? <laughs> and graciously, you know, took their teaching to the world. And we all, the Iyengar student body just benefited hugely from it. So I started studying along with those broadcasts, which I, I'm still doing. I started studying with a, a teacher in Mumbai in her local class uh, because she was on Zoom, and mm -hmm. so I could do her local class in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And she was teaching, uh, she's worked very closely with Prashant Iyengar, and uh, I, between those two teachers, I was very inspired. 
uh, and started having experiences in, in, in yoga that were deeper. They took me to a sort of deeper level. And I had a dream one night that I was in a lecture hall listening to a teacher and the teacher started playing this drum pattern and said, I know there's somebody here who can sing this. And I, and I immediately thought, oh God, I really hope he's not talking about me. And I sort of crumbled into myself and, and the teacher said, I know you can sing this. Don't be afraid. Sing it. And so I sang it and um, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I've been instructed not uh -huh. to be afraid. Uh, so I'm not going to be afraid. I'm just going to sing it. Yeah. And I woke up in the morning and I made a, a memo of, of it and then liked it later on in the day uh -huh. um, and started to put it together into the first song on, on the record. And I, and I put into it the, in English, the first, um, basically the first three sutras of, of Patanjali. They're aphorisms, you know, short okay. sentences. Then I s made this record, this demo and I sent it to my mother who's a yoga an Iyengar yoga teacher who mm -hmm. was my first Iyengar yoga teacher and I sent it to my teacher in Mumbai and they both liked it and so and I and I, I continued to be inspired in that vein and by the particularly by the um, study of the chakra theory mm -hmm. um, and so I sort of found myself taking a journey through the main seven chakras imaginatively in songwriting and that's kind of the journey of, of the record. Okay. And it comes from those teachings and just inspiration, stories, experiences around that, that subject. But it's not at all, as I say, it's not at all a, a yoga record. It's okay. inspired by experience. Just an exploration. It's, it's just inspired, like other records of mine, it's inspired of course. by life experiences. Yeah, that's each one of your records is different, basically, uh, in a lot of ways. I'll get more into that in a minute. Now, I had read somewhere, and it may have even been on Wikipedia, I don't remember, that your mom was a yoga instructor. Has she been doing that most of your life? Did you grow up with yoga and these kinds of teachings? Yes. She's, well, she started studying with going to India and studying with BKS Iyengar in 1981 and oh. then became a senior teacher in Scotland and ran um, the Edinburgh Iyengar Yoga Centre, owned it and ran it for many years and she still teaches um, there and um, she's a very knowledgeable teacher and, and studied with the master guru for, for many years mm. and, and his daughter and Prashant, Gita Iyengar and Prashant Iyengar. Okay. What is it about that that speaks to you, that inspires you, that gets you excited? Well, I, I you know, I think like m many people, I came to yoga because I wanted to get rid of pains in my body. I wanted to, I wanted to be more healthy and I wanted to also calm my mind. And, you know, people sometimes said to me, oh, you do yoga, how relaxing. It's not, mm -hmm. the Iyengar method is not a relaxing <laughs> method. Yeah. It's very stringent and it's hard work, very hard work on multiple levels. But it became then um, a spiritual practice as well. And there are, you know, it can be practiced on all, all sorts of different levels. In, in the West, we we go to yoga classes and we're practicing asana, which is mm -hmm. posture. But as, even asana can be a spiritual practice. But actually, ashtanga yoga is is an eight-petaled uh, uh, process, in which and all of these eight petals are sort of interleaved with each other. Mm. 
it's a very deep, it's a philosophical system, it's a darshana, it's a, it's a dharma, it's a path, it's a spiritual seeking, and it's um, a, a science, and it's an art, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a vast subject, and, you know, I would say I'm just an average student, I'm not, I'm not a teacher at all, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it just brings more and more riches and joy into my life all the time and as my practice develops um it takes me deeper deeper into an interior kind of journey Got it. quite magical yeah one of the songs on the album you might have to help me with some of these pronunciations rudra deva Rudradeva, yes. Okay. Um, first of all, it's so big and exciting and powerful. And there's your voice takes on this kind of wailing. It's still beautiful, but it's not. You're, when I think of you and your music, I think of something a lot daintier. Not in every case, but in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So, where, I mean, you wrote that song, right? When, yes. How, what does it mean? And how did you even conjure that side of you? I guess you're an actress, you conjure all sides of you. Yeah. Um, well, that is uh, based around, I was thinking about the Manipuraka chakra, which is around the navel center and mm. the governing deity of that chakra. See, that's one of the things I love about these chakras and Jeez. is that they have governing deities and they're yeah. um, associated with elements. And this uh-huh. is associated with the element of fire and the governing deity is apparently Rudradeva. And Rudradeva is a, an aspect of Shiva. It's the destructive aspect of Shiva. And the god Rudadeva is associated with thunder, lightning, fire, and destruction, you know, destruction of what they call the Shadrapus, the 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 um the negative inherent evils within us, you know, the um the things that we all struggle with. And uh uh, so yes, I, I I worked on that record and I uh, on that uh, song and I came up with um the vocal and I kept doing it and I kept taking it to a friend who kept saying to me, no, you haven't got it yet, you haven't got it yet, mm. and eventually he said, look, this is a song about a wild, murderous <laughs> demon god. Then you nailed it. Maybe not a demon god, but but it's <laughs> it's god and 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 it's a demonic energy yeah it's super frightening right uh-huh so you have to sing it like an insane person uh-huh you just have to just <laughs> not be you just have to you have to be wild yeah yeah 
Otherwise, it's not going to work. Yeah. And so then I went back in and I, I just took a deep breath and said, right, I'm just going to, I'm just not going to hold anything back at all. And I'm just going to let everything go. If it's terrible, so be it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to put passion into this and um, be unrestrained. Yeah. So that's. I love it. Okay. Um, Svayambu, am I saying that right? Yeah, okay. Sayambu is means self-created. Um, it's another name for Brahma, and it's oh. connected with the uh, regeneration. You know, the the root chakra, um, the that um, earth energy, and it's so that song is kind of describing. It's like a vandana, they call it. It's like a, a kind of in praise of the aspects of Brahma. And then he has a consort, the Saraswati. Saraswati is a sacred river, but it's also the name of a goddess who is supposed to be the goddess of wisdom. And she plays, she's the goddess of music. She plays this um, avena, which is a, a beautiful stringed instrument. And she rides on a swan. And, you know, it, in these practices, at one point, Prashant Iyengar was talking about how within us we different organs and different parts of the body have these deities associated with them. And it was as if I was witnessing some kind of courtly dance going on within me. Mm -hmm. um, when you can sort of get into a, a witness of state in yoga, that's kind of what you're striving for, a kind of era eradication of I-ness, of ego, mm -hmm. small self, and in a more witness of state. And so I, I really had a, a feeling of sort of embodiment, you know, that there is this joyful dance going on within me. Um, and that's what inspired mm. this. Also, you know, uh, I made a video which was inspired by, there's a wonderful film called The River by Jean Renoir. Um, mm -hmm. It's after a book by Rumor Garden, who she grew up in India. She was an Anglo-Indian. And at one point in this film, he's cast um, an Indian dancer in one of the main parts. And you think she's just an actress. And then there's this beautiful moment in the film where it opens up and she does this dance. And she's a, mm -hmm. a well-known um, dancer in the Bharat Natyam style. And uh, I just was so blown away by that. And 
that's what inspired the the, oh, the video. I've seen the video. I didn't know that's where the inspiration came from. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm a I mean, I'm a sucker for pretty much anything that has a tabla on it. I could just listen to that for hours and hours. What did you have? I mean, because as you know, this album is very different compared to many of your other albums, although some of those are very different than the, the other albums. And I want to ask more about that in a second. Did you have um, like, how did you get access to all the right musicians to play these instruments and be on this album for you? Are you friendly with them? Do they go to your same yoga studio? What? <laughs> well, um, I spent quite a long time making demos for this record before I was had any contact with any musicians at all. And I worked with drum loops and I worked with Tanpura drones and I worked with, I kind of worked with melodies that just came into my head mm. without being close to an instrument. I worked um, with sampled s strings and so forth, making arrangements on a keyboard and constructing the songs in that way, which, which is different for me because I usually write on a guitar. But then I, I got together with Fernando Perdomo, um, who I've worked with before. We've worked together now for a few years. He's a multi-instrumentalist. It's mm. great, a great uh, musician. Works with many people. And he's a producer, and he produced one of my records. So I said, are you interested in doing this? He said, yes. Yeah. So we got together in his studio, and... Matt Tecu is a drummer I've I've been working with for a while. He came in. Andy Studer um, replaced um, a lot of the uh, sampled strings with his own mm -hmm. strings, and he also did his own string arrangement on one of the mm -hmm. songs, I Say Your Name. I, but I said to Fernando, we need a, I need a tabla player on this record. And he mm -hmm. said, well, I, I know of this guy through some people on Facebook, Satnam Ramgotra. So I got in touch with him and he's a beautiful, beautiful player. He plays a lot with Hans Zimmer. He's traveling all over the world mm. all the time. But by some miracle, he said, yeah, sure, send me the stuff. I'll listen to it. You know, he was so... Wow. Um, just so open and he didn't he didn't know me from adam and uh he said yes I'll, i'm happy to play on it so i took all of my stuff to his studio and he sat down and played the tabla on all of these songs mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he's actually going to be playing uh, at our gig at mccabe's on september 24th oh, nice yeah. okay nice i'm so i've brought this up a couple of times do you go into each album <sighs> 
purposely to do something different. Like when I listen to Sudden Exposure to Light, I remember putting it on and Underwater Boys comes on. And there's, it sounds like a drum machine or something like that, which again is another thing that I don't associate with Rebecca Pigeon music. And each time, you know, Four Marys is the Scottish album and Bad Poetry is kind of the rock album. And I'm, it's like, do you, um, do you consciously decide, like, I'm really into this thing now and I'm going to explore that? Or is it coincidental? Am I way overthinking this? No, it's just coincidental. It just happens to be where my head is at the time and maybe things that have inspired me, I don't know what, like maybe reading or, or somebody I've heard um, or a movie I've seen, I get inspired by uh, music I hear and films. Sure. People I work with probably put their mark on things. I think that Sudden Exposure to Light definitely has a large imprint of Thomas Bartlett on it, who produced uh, the record. Okay. He's also known as Dove Man. He's a wonderful artist, and he brought his idiosyncratic style very much into that, into the mm. production of that record. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause the second, now I've just listened to it on Spotify, but I've been listening to it for a long time and it's basically that and comfort is that the other disc and they I go together. Disc, yes. Okay. Um, first of all, why did you put them together? And then one is comfort. I would say is more in keeping with what I think of with Rebecca mm -hmm. pigeon music. Yeah. It's more like a band and Fernando and I produced that together. Um, the reason we put them together is that David Whitehead, my manager at the time, suggested it. And and because uh, I had these two records and they were both waiting and we didn't quite know how to, what to do, how to bring them out. And so I think that was his suggestion. And it had been a sort of backlog. I hadn't brought anything out for a while. And he said, well, why don't we do a double album? Mm. I think that that's that's why. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. just trying to cast my mind back um, and that's remember okay. the details, but yeah, I was just curious. It was kind of a bold statement. When you, as you know, your none of your songs you have such a unique perspective when it comes to songwriting because none of them are straightforward love songs or you know nothing, uh, not the basic rhymes or whatever. It's all it's more poetry and storytelling which I'm guessing probably harkens back to you being an actress. But for instance, I was thinking about the song Brown River.
and your voice, your vo you go through these kind of vocal scales almost, or I don't know what the correct technical term is for it during that song. And um, you'll throw in little weird, unique, out of nowhere angles or, or curveballs like that in a lot of your music. Are these, how do you approach songwriting? Do you, I mean, as you're just not straightforward. It's these grander ideas of telling a story or reciting a poem or something. Yeah, it's very nice of you to bring up that song. I think you're the only person in the world who's ever, you know, mentioned that song. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I love it. I like that song. Yeah. I guess I always want to amuse myself. Mm. And I, I've, I find that I throw stuff out if I think it's too square or if somebody's going to beat me to the punchline mm. too fast or... I want to keep myself amused, and so I'll do like odd U-turns, I guess, in my writing mm -hmm. and say, okay, I've had enough of that key signature. Let's just go to something completely unrelated now mm -hmm. to just keep me interested. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably the, the mm -hmm. essence of it. Uh, I, I want to, yeah, I just want to amuse myself. I want to play. Yeah, that I makes sense. Play. Yeah, that and makes that sense. song, Brown River, is... A reverie basically about playing in this polluted river at the time in Edinburgh when I was growing up the water of Leith you know every parent would say to their kid never go down to the water of Leith you know because you'll get tetanus and it's mm -hmm. just disgusting and now it's all beautiful and clean mm -hmm. um, so of course we went down there and just had just loved it so much yeah yeah my uh, my partner that I do this podcast with the production side he does the uh he lives in dunfermline oh, outside really? of yeah and so he's listening to this now he'll be editing and putting this together but wanted to give him a shout out because uh, i've been out there a few times i lived in england for a little while and um been out there a few times it's just so beautiful out there yeah. i love it I yeah um that vocal kind of the scaly again i forgive me if i'm i'm so dumb forgive me if i'm using all the wrong technical terms on these things it reminds me of silent sound off of the new album There's yeah, that similar yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? That elevating or scaling of vo vocals on there too. It is the same. Yeah, that's true. It is the same. Yeah. I mean, you do yeah. find yourself writing the same song again and again. It's true. 
Well, I, mean, I, I don't think that's true art. for you. Well, I, don't... I think a lot of artists do that. I mean, or Maybe. you know, you, you 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 have favorite intervals that you love. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, but I don't hear. That's why I just tied it to those two songs. I don't hear that everywhere. In fact, um, that's what I love about your music is kind of the diversity of it. There's a little bit of everything. Going back to the Bad Poetry album, like Love Is Cocaine. Only you would come up with a <laughs> with an expression like that. That you know? horrible little expression. Actually, it wasn't me. It was uh, I was writing with David Bateau, who's a brilliant lyricist. We wrote the lyrics to that together, and it was um, inspired by the Fritz Lang movie Doctor Mabuse, which is um, about this evil Svengali kind of guy who's a gambler, and he hypnotizes his victims. Mm -hmm. And they become sort of enslaved to him, you know, a bit like um, Dracula, like, like mm -hmm. Bram Stoker. So that's a dark, dark song. I mean, it's yeah. so dark about, it's about addiction and it's about the slavery of addiction. Mm. And it's about this evil genius. It, have you ever seen that film, Fritz Lang? No. And in fact, it's funny you say that because... It's a masterpiece, yeah. Is it? I, um, I've never seen it. And I didn't know that it was pronounced that way. So I've always said Mabuse. And one of my favorite albums of the 80s is from this band called Propaganda. And they have a song called Dr. Yes. Mabuse or Mabuse. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yes. And so I've been saying it wrong all this time. <laughs> That's what well, I just I mean, learned. I don't know. I mean, I don't speak German, but I think it's pronounced Mabuse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll fix it from now on whenever I listen to yes, fix that Secret thing. Wish by Propaganda. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So you didn't go into making bad poetry with the intention of making more of a rock record because that's exactly what it is. Well, I think I was being inspired by people like PJ Harvey and like um, sure, like the early bands as well from my mm. youth that I loved, um, mm. like Susie and the Banshees and yeah. Paul, you know. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to get really grungy and. I mean, you get you get compared to Joni Mitchell a lot, obviously, because I think you both see the world in very unique ways that a lot of singer-songwriters don't. There's also kind of a tunefulness there that I think of when I think of like someone like Sean Colvin or something like that. Mm -hmm. And who do you? I mean, are does that? Are you comfortable with comparisons like that? Do they inspire you, or is it somebody completely different that we would never guess? Already, The Fall. I would never think of. Rebecca Pigeon in the fall, but that's awesome. God, I love that band. Yeah. He is such a bizarre alcoholic poet. 
<laughs> and with absolutely no impulse control whatsoever. No, no. No, I mean, God, that's very flattering. I, I very much admire Sean Colvin and, and also Joni Mitchell. In fact, I was very inspired by Joni Mitchell in the early days of like <clears throat> writing those songs and recording them with Chesky Records. <laughs> but I think that the influence of my early, um, you know, early listening came out a bit later on in my in my recording career, uh, and. The, the listening I was doing when I was a, a teenager and going to mm. clubs and stuff in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. which was much more alternative rock, mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I loved that album, Dirk Wears White Socks by... Oh, I love that amount. It's... Absolutely. Iconic. Yes. Just brilliant. I mean, just brilliant. Just a wow. brilliant work of poetry and art yes. and music and... Um, that that kind of thing, and and I wanted to be I wanted to explore that kind of experimental place as well in um, sudden exposure to light as well. Ooh, I love that. Uh, do you play out much? What's your like? I don't think I've ever been in a position to see you live. Do no, you go on tour? Do you open for people or what? I I did do a long a lot of opening for an artist called Mark Cohn a while. Sure. Yeah. But as my music got a bit rougher, it started to not work as well with his 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 set, I think. Uh -huh. Not that um, he complained about that. He didn't at all. Sure. But we just, I, I, then I just sort of went off into um, recording and stuff. I tend to like to play with a band, uh. and it's expensive to take a band mm -hmm. around. But I am, I am going to be playing... Um, two gigs for this record. I think this podcast will air after the gigs have. Been. Maybe when are they? Well, my gig in I'm playing at Joe's Pub in New York City on September 19th. Oh yeah, probably will be. Yeah, and and at McCabe's in Los Angeles on September 24th, and there'll be sort of record release shows. Nice. But I want to start. I do want to start playing out more, and I'm developing a way to do it, just in a solo. Um, a solo way so that will free me up i think to mm -hmm. do a bit more um traveling to to more places but you know one does need backing yeah to get out on the road and it's difficult to get backing these days as an independent artist it's interesting um i recently talked to a female singer songwriter named mary fall i don't know if you know her she was from a boss a band out of boston called october project Yes, yes. Yeah, because aren't you, didn't you live in Boston or have connections? That's right. And um, she uh, does her own thing now. And she's, you two remind me a little bit of, a, of each other. And she just came through Denver where I live. And I got to meet her and see her in concert. But it was just her and a guitar in like a smaller theater. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you would be great at that. Yeah, I think that's the way to do things. Yeah. Yeah, no overhead. Yeah. You make all the money. You sign some CDs or whatever afterwards and say hi, you know, yeah. and you get to do it the way you want to do it. I would love to see Rebecca Pigeon live at mm. some point. Do you, so what is the state? Like you have two careers going on and they're both big ones in very high profile, in a very high profile businesses. And as you know, I mean, 
you know, nobody ever went and saw Dogstar in concert because they liked Dogstar's music. They went to see Keanu Reeves play a bass guitar. But with you, it's different because your music kind of stands on its own. How do you negotiate both? Are you able to give one your all? Do you do one when the other, do you kind of ignore one while the other one is taking off or you're especially busy? How do, do you that. navigate yeah, it? I do that. I just put my headspace completely in the one thing that I'm doing. Yeah. Actually, I have to because I can't do them both at the same time. Yeah. Okay. I think you're coming, your daughter is, Are you? you're not quite an empty nester, but isn't she going off to college soon? Oh, she's been and done that stuff. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, so maybe you are. So I, I wondered if having kids out of the house frees you up to do something different or it do does, more or less or whatever. It does. I mean, and uh, it does definitely. And, you know, I've only just come around to arranging myself as a s solo performer. And so I, that's when I, it's funny that you talk about that because that's my plan is to do a lot more performing on my own. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you do. Going back to one of your other albums, it feels like the tough on crime album was kind of, it was very, more, very much more produced than a lot of your other ones. Yeah. You had collaborated with Larry Klein at yeah. that time and Walter Becker's on there and Billy Preston. How did all of these people come to back you? That was Larry. They were all really? Larry. Yeah, Larry has, just knows everybody and he's um, so respected in the business and knows so many people and people love where I loved working with him. And I, you know, we, we would like to make another record together, actually. <laughs> he became a, you know, a friend. And, but, you know, I just met him then and I had all these, these songs and it was just me on my acoustic guitar. And he said, well, yeah, come in and put them all down on your acoustic mm -hmm. guitar and then you know i'll see you later so i did that i just went in and played them and then i came back and there was this all this like he played me the record and i was like what <laughs> that's not what i played um so that i i feel like yeah he should get co-credit on like kind of on that record, yeah. so were you not in the room when billy preston comes and plays on your album no i was Watching you from afar, been watching you pretty close up to who I'm amazed at the way you steal yourself to do the things that you do. Your disguise is good, but not perfect. You just can't help yourself. Lo and behold, the truth slips through the real unedited you.
I was. Oh, you were? Oh, tell me about it. That was amazing. He came. Um, he, he was not very well at the time, but God, he played. He, he just rocked and rolled when he was playing. He played that organ just like it was the last thing he was ever going to do and like it was a prayer or something. Mm-hmm. And he put everything into it. And I went and sat beside him on the, the piano bench and he just said to me, that's a great song. Mm. He wrote and and uh, he does he only so, play on the one song? He plays on the one song called "Nasty Guy." Yeah, that's right. And um, he was just oh God, such a sweetheart, and completely, you know, just completely a regular guy. And, regular guy. Yeah. yeah. What about Walter Becker? They're both gone now. I did know. you get to see Walter or be around Walter? Yes, I did get to meet Walter several times and be around him. I loved him. Um, he play, He did his solo uh, remotely, though. He did oh. his solo on, on Tough on Crime. I said to Larry, oh, Jesus, you know, what, what shall I pay him? I mean, God, he's going to be like $10,000 for like five minutes of work. And, and Larry said, just send him a bottle of red wine. He'll be fine, which, which is what I did. <laughs> and that worked. It oh, worked, my yeah. gosh. Wow. He did it as a basically. That is great. That is great. Although, I guess being an actress, a famous actress and married to David Mamet, you may, maybe you don't get starstruck like I would in a situation like that, you know? I don't know. I was starstruck with my husband for the first two years of oh, our I relationship. Bet. I don't think I even said anything to him in the first two years of our relationship. I was too shy. <laughs> now I boss him about mercy. Of course. Of course you do. Of course you do. Do you find, I mean, I was kind of alluding to this earlier, but it is difficult for anyone who straddles both genres to be taken seriously usually mm-hmm. it's usually you're taken more seriously as an actress mm-hmm. and the singing is sort of seen as like a hobby mm-hmm. on the side mm-hmm. you know do you face that and if you do how do you how do you combat that uh yeah i do face it um i had a guy on facebook like i don't like i'm learn. it's like a learning curve for me social media so uh-huh. <laughs> He gets on Facebook, I posted something, and he gets on and he says, you're just one of those stupid actresses who, like, Mm. thinks she can sing, and, you know, it's just a pain in the ass, something like that. And so I said, I responded to him, I said, and fuck you too. (laughs) Not realizing that the entire world is reading this interchange. And so then he says, 
oh, that's really nice. That's a lovely way to behave, you know, lovely oh way to, thing to say. And Whatever. then a whole bunch of other people come on like, well, you started exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> screw, screw that troll. Forget him. And, and then I was like, what is happening? And I, so I said to my my daughter's boyfriend, who is now her husband, who's oh great at, he said, oh, just you have to just delete stuff like that. And showed me to delete, to delete it. Um, I bear that person no malice, by the way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He's probably just a nice guy somewhere. Somewhere, um, yeah. And I beg your pardon for telling him to go. If you're listening, Don't, whoever please. you are. <laughs> he had it coming. He had so, it coming. Um, but, uh, you know, God, I suppose I, I, I do deal with it. And, you know, people don't take you seriously sometimes. But, you know, you can't win every time and you can't sure. everybody love you. So you just have to be philosophical about it. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, if you were to play a song for someone to say, look, I am serious. Here's an example. Oh, what, what What is it? And that doesn't have to be a favorite song, but is there something where you, I don't know, where you nailed a moment or a vocal or a word or a phrase that you're just like, I, I nailed that well, one. Do you know, I have a problem when somebody says to me, what kind of music do you write? Oh, I could see that. Yeah. I have a real problem with that mm-hmm. because I don't, there's, I have written several in several different styles and I'd, I suppose I'd want to present a little selection of things mm-hmm. that would mm-hmm. be all very different from each other mm-hmm. in that scenario. Cause I can't think of one song that. No, you're right. I've, I've thought the exact same thing in describing you to other people. Well, it's a little bit of everything. Like I said, it's part Joni, it's part Sean, it's part Nellie Mackay. It's part, there's some drama to it. It's a little bit of everything. Depends on her mood. Depends on whatever album she's on. You know yeah. what I mean? Like um, you, I mean, you get it. I think you're, I think if I looked at Spotify, you probably your most streamed song is the Spanish Harlem cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have, there's other ones like she moved through the fair off of the blue dress album. Mm-hmm. My young love said to That one is so you because it's in keeping with that kind of Celtic, um, you know, your Celtic background or whatever. Mm. What does that kind of music do you, I don't know. Do you, do you tie back? Do you draw from it to inspire you no matter what you do? Or is that sort of a mood you're in? 
You mean like with traditional? Yeah, music? traditional. Kel- I mean, you have the whole Four Marys album that's all I, I traditional Celtic. It, you know, so I feel yeah. like in my bones. And whenever I hear a bagpipe, you know. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just such a sucker for that stuff. And I love um, those musicians. I love those. You know, I love yeah. that band, Silly Wizard and Boys of the Loch. And Ali Bain is one of the great violin players of Scotland. And he's yeah. a good friend of my dad, actually. You know, oh. it's, a, it's a small community up there. Mm-hmm. And so you tend to know people. And God, there's nothing better than being in a, in a pub in Scotland you know, up north, and they close the doors, and all the musicians come, and you they play oh, Kaylee until dawn. That is the best. Yeah, it's just yeah, the greatest music. I mean, folk music. That's what folk music is. It's music of the yes. folk, and it moves yes. us all. And whatever culture you're in, and it and it speaks to you about your culture, and it tells the story of your life, and it it's what makes you belong and it feel that you belong in a way in in your culture and that's why it's so important to all of us you know Mm -hmm. very much so um okay can i nerd out for one second on acting i wanted to focus on your music because that's i I, that's what we're talking about and i love it i believe you went to rada with clive owen is that right yes (laughs) he's one of my favorite actors can you tell me one clive owen story one clive owen story he and i did for our final project, we did a play called The Widowing of Mrs. Holroyd together. He played, I played Mrs., he played Mr. Holroyd, I played Mrs. Holroyd. You know, I think we kind of, we were both overacting like mad in it, I think. He was probably better than I was. And um, I think I like lost my voice sh- shouting at him. Uh, he's just a lovely guy, you know, he's, I think he's from Blackpool and he's very, unassuming and and friendly and i went to see his film with my husband dave he and i went to see the film that he made with mike nichols called closer closer yeah and i went up to him at the after party and he just looked right past me and i said hi clive hi hi what didn't recognize me and i i he and then i went to hug him because i didn't realize he doesn't know that fuck you are I, I went to hug him and he sort of looked so alarmed he looked like oh my god the fan is going to uh-huh. touch me and going to hug me and i held him i said it's rebecca and he took him he said oh my god oh my god and like gave me a big kiss on the lips and oh i'm so glad yeah i mean he's being a right prat yeah up least. until that point yeah <laughs> I suppose that's how he is with his public. I don't know. Maybe he's changed as a. Oh, I don't know. I want to believe he's a great guy because I love everything he's, that he, he is does. A great guy. And I think he stayed in touch with some of our friends from Rada. And, Good. Yeah. If anything, I feel like his career deserve. He he's not the action guy. He deserves better than that. He's in all these action movies, and that's fun. But I want him to do some straightforward acting. I don't want him to feel like he has to do that. You know what I mean? To get yeah, across. No, he's a good act he's a good actor yeah yeah do whatever he wants but i love him i guess he's been because he's so handsome and everything yeah turn him into a yeah that's a it's a shame um okay I know, was he, when he first showed up at rada he had a spiky hairdo like and it was like long and red like this ridiculous like cockerel kind of um really? 
hairstyle in the front and it was all long at the back and he was from Blackpool and he was just like like dressed like a tramp you know just such a yeah young boy really oh god yeah 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 and like loves loves to laugh like really silly goofy laugh and like um, i love that practical jokes and yeah he's not the cool cucumber that you see on (laughs) (laughs) oh man i love these stories um I am curious about something too, going back to kind of the acting and the singing, but I'm wondering if financial stability changes your creative thirst. You know, I wonder if being, having both or being successful at both, not having to do one or the other to survive, maybe if, if your creativity is different because you're not starving, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can be, you can, if you're lucky, you can be picky about the parts you do. Sure. But, you know, I always laugh in, when I see actors in interviews and, and the interviewer says to them, you know, have you been picky and choosy about them? Well, obviously you've been, you've chosen which parts are, are best for you. And this, so this is the way your career went. And they all mm-hmm. say, yes, I meaning no. I just did whatever came along. Right, right. I have to pay the bills too. (laughs) I have to pay the bills. And that's, I suppose people think that when people are in public life, they're wealthy or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but they're often not. And they're just going to work Mm -hmm. like else, you know? Yeah. I wondered about that. I, um, you know, I've had people on here who, like for instance, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, Jack Hughes, who's the lead singer of Wang Chung, uh, super great guy. We've become friendly, but of course, he co-wrote "Everybody Have Fun Tonight." That song alone makes him a lot of money. You know what I mean? Because of that, he doesn't have to go out, out on tour if he doesn't want to. He doesn't need to put the band back together if he doesn't want to. He can make his like obscure prog rock albums that feed his soul and no one else's if he wants to, but it's financial. It's the financial uh, stability that comes from some success that allows him to do that. You know, sure. whereas if you're not that guy and you've never had the hit and you did, didn't have, you weren't also an actress, also married to a successful playwright or whatever. And it's just you and your guitar trying to make it. I wonder how your career would be different. You know? Yeah, um, I think I would have had to put my energies in somewhat different places. I mean, as it is, I put a lot of energy into my family, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I really did uh, take a lot of time to do that. Yeah, you did. So if I hadn't had that, then I I made that choice, and that that's the choice that I, I'm so grateful that I made. Yeah. You know? Because that's the most important thing in the world to me. Absolutely. Yeah, you can tell. Speaking of working with David, I wanted to ask you, he's Mm. co-written some of your songs. Mm. Um, There's a couple back-to-back, actually, on the first album, You Got Me and Heart and Mind. And he's, I believe, co-writing a co-writer on both of those. Is he? That's what it said on allmusic.com. No, he's not. He's not? They got it wrong? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Because both of those songs um say baby baby a lot and and which is not 
I mean, there are other songs of yours that do that, but I wondered, like, is there is there a connection here between songs co-written by David Mamet that say "baby, baby" a lot? No, no, I guess not. So, what does he contribute to your well, songwriting? Well, he wrote a song called he wrote a poem called "Primitive Man," which I put to music. And then mm -hmm. he, he's got a much more, uh, I would say, a traditional approach to songwriting. and Like more blues-based? Yeah. I would okay. Yes. Rock-based or whatever? Not rock-based, no. Oh. Not at all. Mm. Um, you know, his, his great love is the American songbook and, and um, mm. real-building yeah, sure. uh, songwriters, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so he's he's living in a different century, really, when it comes to that kind of music. And mm -hmm. so I can't remember the last thing that we co-wrote, but we co-writing meant he would write a lyric and then I would put it to mm. music, yeah. Okay. You know what? We did co-write the song. I'm sorry. We did co-write the song, um, Baby, <laughs> Please Come <laughs> Home Again. <laughs> Which is quite a traditional country uh -huh. song, you know, in in the style of somebody like Hank Williams. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> that's 
that's funny. <laughs> nice coincidence. Um, is it difficult to, what's it like collaborating with another artist? Uh, for instance, I, I had John Doe on here from the band X uh, a few months ago. And as you, he's, he reminds me of you a little bit in that poetry seems to be sort of a guiding light for him as well. And in the early days of X, it's him and Exene, and they're both poets. And if when I think of poets, I think of people, not unlike David, to be honest, who are hyper precious about their words, mm -hmm. how the usage of the words, how you say them. Mm -hmm. And I was talking with him about the difficulty of maybe having two poets in a band criticizing, you know, nicely or not, each other's words to make a song. And I wonder if you and David have a similar, are you able to get over the ego of, of your, you know, artistry to give feedback to one another? Or is there that preciousness just really difficult to overcome? Oh, no, no. I, I, I mean, I completely bow to his, I, I'm in awe of, of his uh, writing. Uh, and uh, it, it, it. But writing a play is different than writing a song. You know? Yeah, his lyric writing, yeah, it does teach me stuff. But actually, there there did come a point where I said to him, you know, your lyrics are beautiful and great, uh, but it's just not me. So I'm yeah. going to say I'm not, I, I'm going to pursue my own thing, just my own voice, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, you know, the... the the, the preciousness of our of these great writers it's not I don't know if it's preciousness it's it's to do with rhythmic precision I remember mm. speaking to an actress Fanula Flanagan um, oh yeah she, was, we, she and I did a play a year or two ago and um, she was talking about Beckett Samuel Beckett and Billy Whitelaw and that Billy Whitelaw that the, the that Beckett directed her. He said, "You know, after you've finished this line, you will then count one, two, three, and then you will say the next." Mm -hmm. And he did. So he made her actually count the pauses in between each utterance. Mm -hmm. And I said to Dave, "Can you believe that? What a hellish situation for her!" And he said, "No, that's what I expect." <laughs> As soon as you said that, I thought, wouldn't David Mamet do the exact same thing? Because I would imagine Apparently, he would. Yes. yes. <laughs> Classic. Oh, that's great. Well, look, Rebecca, I love so much of your music, and I love that it's all different, and it hits me in different ways. Songs hit me differently at different times. I just... I, this sounds so reductive and I don't mean it for it to, cause it's a high compliment, but I want you to just keep doing what you're doing Thank you. because I love it. I love oh, when you take these detours and I love when you, I love the storytelling and I love the different sounds and the different vibes of each album. I love it. You know, that really means a lot because you know, that sometimes you do think, is there anybody out there who's listening yeah. to me who wants me to actually produce this stuff? So I'm glad that you are there. And that I am here. I love it. <laughs> yes. Well, then I will. All right. There you have it, Rebecca Pigeon. If you didn't know her music, I hope you heard some things in here that you like. Again, I have two copies of Parts of Speech, Pieces of Sound on CD to give away. I... Uh, this will go out to any Patreon supporter who wants to get in on it. I will send out an email on later this week and draw a winner randomly on Sunday for two people to win a copy of the CD. 
It's so good. I hope you heard things in here that you like. I want to close it out with one of her more recent albums. It's from a few years ago called Bad Poetry. I love that album too. And it's her rock album, basically. This is the title track off of that. I think it's so great. Explore Rebecca Pigeon because it's so interesting and diverse. There's a little bit of everything in there. Now, next week should be, if all goes well, another twofer. Two fantastic, as I said, a lot of what's going on right now is singer-songwriters. Um, a lot of them are from the 90s or got started in the 90s or sort of peaked in the 90s, but still have careers like Rebecca. Next, week, next week's guests, if it goes according to plan, are two singer-songwriters. One is also in a giant band. Uh, the other is probably lesser known, but is fantastic. And they are about to go out on tour together. And so it makes sense to put them both on at once because I really love them both. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mamakevich, my right-hand man, for everything. Thank you, buddy. You guys know by now you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can find us on email. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.